0: where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall broadcasting remotely. Governor Ned Lamont will deliver his budget address later today. Because of the pandemic, this speech is expected to be recorded and played back for lawmakers, much like the governor's state of the state address last month. And thanks to COVID-19 social distancing rules, most of the legislators will not be in the capitol's Hall of the State House of Representatives, where they would normally gather for a governor's budget speech. Now, Lamont's two-year taxing and spending plan impacts the lives of everyone in our state, from determining how much money goes to state and local services to how much everyone pays to get those services. The budget also helps determine who gets the resources and who pays for it. For more on the next two-year budget, joining us on Zoom is Keith Fanef, state budget reporter at the Connecticut Mirror. Keith, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And our listeners can join us as well. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. It's going to be a long day for you. Do you expect any surprises when the governor releases his budget, Keith?
1: I do. I think today's budget is going to be one of the hardest to read. And it's ironic when I uh, saying that only because um, there are, uh, this is, let's put it this way. This is the year that's going to test whether everybody read the fine print on the budget. This is the year, you know, if we're playing Monopoly, where the, the kids who read the inside of the box cover and read the rules are going to have an advantage. Um, because of the pandemic and how it's affected state finances over the past 12 months because of the potential for President Biden and Congress to send billions of dollars on to the states, um, a lot can happen.
0: So originally, there was a bigger deficit expected over the next two years, and now our current budget has a small surplus. How did we get here beyond uh, the federal stimulus keep?
1: Thank you, Lucy. That's probably the, that's probably the single most important framing question we can have uh, for today's news. We know what everybody was expecting back in the worst of the pandemic in late April and early May. At that time, and it was nobody's fault, people were saying again in, in say early May, they were saying that by now a $2 billion rainy day fund would be gone that the new budget the governor would have to balance would have as much as five or $6 billion of built-in holes, like two to three, two and a half to 3 billion a year. In other words, we're talking about like a 15% gap. Now flash forward to today, a $2 billion rainy day fund not only didn't evaporate, it's up to $3 billion. And that $6 billion problem is down to two and a half. And I'm sorry to throw all the numbers out on the listeners, but we have more money right now in the rainy day fund than we have problems in our next two year budget. And that's not even factoring, again, that President Biden has proposed sharing about $350 billion with states. Traditionally, Connecticut gets 1% of the pie because we're a rich state. So do the quick math, that's three, three and a half billion potentially coming our way if Congress can get its act together. That's not even factored into this. So we went from looking at things really dismally. And again, it was nobody's fault because if you remember when the pandemic struck, we delayed all the tax filing deadlines. So if you don't have tax data, you don't know how bad your problem is. But now that we do know because the stock market has rebounded so much. I mean, the, the, the Dow Jones industrial average is something like 12 or 15% higher than it was when the pandemic struck. Um, Connecticut's got all kinds of options.
0: Hmm. It's an interesting turn of events for the state, Keith. Do you anticipate- And I should have
1: added, Lucy, I'm sorry, in the short term, let's not, let's, before we all get too, too happy, <laughs> I'll throw one last number at you. We have more than $90 billion of long-term bonded and pension debt. And the, the money billion? we have coming in is a drop in the bucket against that over the next 20 to 30 years, Connecticut's still looking at a very tough road to hope. Well, we're, we're
0: glad you gave us the reality check, Keith. I didn't so, want you smiling. <laughs> well, I, I have to ask about the Rainy Day Fund, like you said, more than $3 billion in that reserve. So do you anticipate the governor will
1: use some of that in his budget proposal? I think he will. I don't think he has any choice on that. He's going to need to because he cannot right now budget for federal money that hasn't been approved. You you don't want to you don't want to gamble. But if that money does come down, I interviewed um Senator Murphy, Chris Murphy earlier this week, and he had said, look, I think it's you know it's at least a 50-50 chance and I think we've got to come through. Um, then what happens, say that money comes down in April or May, then the real debate starts. Do we simply take the money we took out of the rainy day fund to balance the budget and do we put it back in because we've got federal money that can do the same job? Or do we take... The, the federal money, which we've got to spend, which is, again, potentially as much as the rainy day fund or more. And then do we take some of the rainy day fund and help what a lot of uh, the governor's fellow Democrats want to do? They want to help small businesses, school districts, nursing homes, social services, other health care providers. Um, there are a lot of people who've been really hurt by the pandemic, and we've been saving a lot of money while the pandemic's been going on a lot of state dollars.
0: You're hearing Keith Faneff again. He is a reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, state budget reporter, as the governor is getting ready to release his next two-year budget proposal today. Uh, Keith, I wanted to ask you, and you've covered this in your stories for the Connecticut Mirror, how does the governor's emergency powers impact this budget session coming forward in front of the legislature, as well as, you know, how this federal money will be spent?
1: That's another crucial point. The governor's emergency powers were extended by the Democratic majority over Republican objections until mid-April. The Republicans wanted to go on a much shorter timetable, basically, like about one month at a time. Uh, The administration has promised to work with the legislature to divide up the federal money, but, and this is a huge but, It is the position of the administration that they don't have to. That those emergency powers, as long as the money comes down during that, gives them sole authority over how to handle this money. So you can say, well, what does it matter? They're all gonna sit down at the table. Well, what happens when you sit down at the table and one side says they wanna use it this way and the other side says that way, but only one of the two sides has the ultimate power? Eventually, someone ends up with a larger piece of the pie. Um, so that's gonna, that's gonna potentially have a huge effect on how, how the budget's so done. The other thing is the governor has some real leverage because of the spending cap, which is kind of wonky and kind of tricky, but think of it as the tiebreaker. If, if the, the governor and the legislature are kind of gridlocked, the spending cap sort of tips the tie in the favor of the governor. The only leverage the legislature has, if they wanna spend more than the governor, is to not pass anything, let this drag out into the summer and the fall.
0: So can we talk about some of the proposals on the table, Democratic lawmakers see, this is another opportunity to shift the state's tax burden from lower income residents to higher income residents. There have been proposals out for the last two weeks, Uh, Senate President uh, Martin Looney's so-called mansion tax, another proposal to expand the child tax credit. And so how will this be worked into the governor's proposal, if at all, Keith?
1: Um, I think you will not see it at all in the governor's budget proposal, but you will see it debated throughout the legislative session. And I want to give just a little history, if I can, to frame this. If you really want to understand this, I think you have to go back to the last gubernatorial campaign uh, when then-candidate Ned Lamont was facing Republican businessman Bob Stefanowski who had made, I'm not trying to take sides, I'm just talking about the math, a virtually impossible claim, that he would phase out over about eight years the state income tax. You're talking about something that pays for half of the general fund. It, it just It's not empirically possible. But the message had traction. People were responding to it. And so what again, then candidate, not Governor Ned Lamont said was, well, I'm going to propose some achievable tax relief. It's going to be far less, but it's going to be realistic. And he said, I'm going to cut income taxes on the poor and the middle class. I'm going to do it by expanding another income tax credit, the property tax credit. It's very simple. You pay your property taxes, you get some of that money back with your income tax refund. The, the, the credit phases out once you start making too much money. I think it's over about $150,000. The point is, it's aimed at the, at the middle class and he was going to expand it so the poor could benefit from it more as well. Ned Lamont won the election, became governor. I don't want to say fiscal conditions got a lot better. My point is they marginally improved. They did not get worse. He can't say, well, I couldn't keep my promise because things got worse. They got marginally better. And yet he still did not deliver the the, the relief and has now consistently said on every single proposal to provide more tax relief for the poor and the middle class, if it involves taxing the rich, he has come out in opposition to it, saying, I don't wanna raise taxes on anyone. He's even said, I don't wanna do it now while we have the economic wind at our backs. And I think some of his staff wish he had not said that since we have about 200,000 people collecting unemployment. So there's a lot of, uh, every week. I, I realize there's a lot of backstory to that, but my point is, That's going to be a real issue because Governor Lamont wants that. He has some some uh, liability there, some exposure there. I think he would like that issue to go away, but I don't see it going away anytime soon. Hmm.
0: You alluded to this earlier. This budget process is a negotiation. We've got a Democratic majority in our state legislature. So how much of this uh, budget uh, negotiating in the next few months, you know, do they really need to follow some of the proposals that the governor has put forth, can they do their own thing?
1: Well, here's the problem. If you want to do your own thing, we do have a challenge. There is a there is a statutory spending cap. You can legally exceed it, but you need a 60% vote in both the House and Senate. I think Governor Lamont would veto that, which means then if you want to override a veto, even if you're willing to get into a political fight, and I don't think leadership wants to do that, then you've got to have a two-thirds vote. But there is something the rank and file can do. They can simply not send a budget. They get every time leadership negotiates with the governor and comes back to the rank and file and says, "You know, this is what the governor is willing to give us." And if the rank and file feels it's not generous enough, if it does not provide the relief they're looking for, they can say, "Sorry, please go back to the drawing board and start all over again." Um, the reason the spending cap is—and again, I should tell people—the spending cap is designed to try to keep the growth in about 70% of the state budget. That's that's how much is subject to the cap. We don't count payments on our bonded debt. Uh, we don't count some of the money we set aside to put into the pensions. We don't count federal grants, but the rest of the uh, of the budget subject to the cap. And we try to keep the growth of that capped area in line with the growth in personal income. And we're talking then about less than 3% growth over the next two fiscal years. Um, that's, that's going to be very hard, I think, for some people to live with. But if you want to go around that, there's really no way to do it without the cooperation of the governor. And if he doesn't give it, the only thing, again, the legislature can do is not cooperate back and not send a budget to him and, and try to find ultimately some middle ground later in the summer or in the fall.
0: Now, if the governor is not open to taxing the wealthy, um, increasing the taxes on the wealthy, what does this mean for other revenue opportunities like online sports betting or recreational marijuana, Keith?
1: Well, I think those, well, I mean, one thing we should clarify on sports betting, and and this doesn't contradict anything you said, just want to build upon it. Sports betting was was legalized by the Court decision. The question is simply: is whether Connecticut is going to set up a mechanism to manage it. So it's already going on, and I think you will see that passed. And I think there's a very good chance you will see marijuana passed. But just to give people some idea, remember I said the income tax raises about nine and a half, ten billion dollars a year. With marijuana, the first year you might be talking about seventy million dollars. Um, in other words. Uh, a a very very I mean very small fraction you're not even talking about one percent of what the income tax brings in and sports betting would be less than that Um, nobody's going to turn that money down I think that again there is a good chance that they'll pass but in terms of uh, solving Connecticut's long-term budget challenges um, it's it's kind of like taking a pen knife to a tree a big tree stump you have in the backyard Um, you're not going to make a lot of progress
0: You mentioned 90 billion dollars of long term liabilities that Connecticut still needs to grapple with. I'm wondering if you can talk about what this means for the state workforce in the next couple of years. You've You've covered that, you know, there are more that are expected to retire and how that will impact
1: our pension liabilities. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting thing. Keep in mind, the more people that retire, by definition, when you're working, you're paying into the pension fund when you're retired. Not only are you not contributing to it, you're drawing money out of the pension fund. And we are anticipating a silver tsunami, as some are calling it, because we uh, back in 2017, we tightened pension rules starting in July of 2022. So a lot of people want to get out the door. Before then, there are some projections, as many as 12,000 employees, about 25% of the executive branch workforce will be eligible to retire. doesn't mean 12,000 will go out the door. It also doesn't mean does not speak to how many of those jobs will be refilled. Uh, But the governor, under the direction from the legislature, did hire a firm to analyze how the state can try to take advantage of this and possibly not only save money, but use technology to make services more efficient. Um, As you can imagine, the unions are are pushing back on that strong. Um, They're saying that uh, the state, which it did already, uh, under Governor Malloy over the last decade, it already reduced the executive branch workforce by about 10%. We do have a lot of agencies that are understaffed. Um, so I am expecting that'll be a fight. I don't think in the next two years it's going to make a big difference in our budget. Um, but, you know, we know from the, again, from the Malloy administration, when you lay off a lot of people, you don't save much money in the first couple of years. You have to pay out accrued sick time and vacation time in some cases and the like. So I don't think this is a silver bullet, and certainly in terms of our long-term pensions, if it's going to make a difference, it'll be many years before we know. And and even if it does, again, ninety billion dollars, uh, you could you could get rid of five thousand state positions, and I don't think the annual mm-hmm. savings would even be five hundred million dollars a year. It's money you would take, but nothing is going to save Connecticut from having a very tough road to hoe over the next two to three decades. That's mm-hmm. just that die is cast.
0: Again, you're hearing Keith Faniff, he's state budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, as we get a bit of a preview of what's in store as Governor Lamont is expected to release his budget later today, and then the legislature and the governor will negotiate over the next few months in this legislative session. I'm curious how this budget will impact schools in our state, Keith, as well as municipalities and even social services. Is there something for everyone?
1: I think the perception, the fear is that today's budget is going to be lean for for most of those groups. I mean, keep in mind that they did benefit somewhat during the pandemic from the federal relief we got, but the state didn't put in their dollars. I'll start with higher ed. They've taken a huge hit. Um, They had to refund a lot of money in the spring. Uh, They have not found, uh, uh, understandably, as many students back on campus as they thought. And they still don't know over the long haul, will this even have a five or 10% shift in student perceptions where maybe that number of students no longer want to live on campus. They said, you know, going remote wasn't that much fun, but I saved a ton of money and I'm going to keep doing it that way. I can't pass up that savings. If that happens, higher ed has some real long-term problems. They've got big projected deficits over the next two years. They're going to need some assistance. Um, Cities and towns and local school districts are concerned, towns estimated last summer that they were out about $400 million in revenue because of the pandemic. Some of that was just deferred, people couldn't pay their property taxes on time, others couldn't make them. We still don't have a handle on, don't forget Lucy, how many businesses have actually closed? We estimate there are, for example, just among restaurants, 600 restaurants that are shut down in Connecticut. How many of those are shut down permanently though? We don't know how many of them are gonna ultimately default on their property taxes. Um, you mentioned Senator Looney's mansion tax. One of the things he would use that is to fund an increase in a non-education grant to cities and towns. Um, the governor has expressed some interest in increasing the non-education grants. I don't think he wants to fund it with a mansion tax. Um, but I'll remind you of one other thing. We had a big program to share sales tax revenues with cities and towns. Passed in 2015 with much fanfare kind of poorly planned out though because people knew that we didn't have enough money to pay for it. It was passed in 2015. The Democratic majority campaigned on it in 2016. It wasn't really scheduled to share big money with towns though until 2018. By the time it was time to share the money, $300 million a year became about $30 million, and then the program was put into limbo. Governor Lamont wants to finish that off and just kill the program and that's what I expect we're going to see today in his budget. So even if they get 100 million in non-education grants um, in the pilot system, the payment in lieu of taxes grant, they're gonna lose once and for all that sales tax money. Cities and towns are probably not gonna come out of this position, certainly not better than they are today or not much better.
0: And what about social services? Uh, There's so many organizations that provide critical services, especially in this pandemic. I believe the the co chairwomen of the Appropriations Committee, you've covered this, are saying that it's time to make them whole because they haven't gotten a lot of increases over the last two decades. Do you anticipate that Governor Lamont uh, will be able to provide a little bit more to social service organizations?
1: Yes, but an emphasis on little. Very little. And and I, I do want to give the listeners some context here, Lucy, because I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this. We provide the bulk of our social services, not through state employees, but through small nonprofit community-based organizations. And they can kind of get lost in the weeds, but collectively they're massive. If you think of the amount of money we spend a year on that, they are the size of the prison system, the DOT and the DMV combined. And we're talking about services provide provided for people with um, intellectual and developmental disabilities, physical physical disabilities, people struggling with substance abuse. Um, We're talking about abused children, children with behavioral disorders. Um, These are um, re-entry services for for prison inmates. Um, These are all programs that the state has always had, but we just rely on the private sector to do it uh, significantly um, more cheaply. And over the last two decades, um, we have not paid them much more than they got 20 years ago, which means once you adjust for inflation, um, they're losing a ton of money. They estimate they need another $460 million a year just to deal with that inflationary gap. That governor has no, I mean, nowhere near the flexibility of his budget to give them anything resembling that they would be fortunate to get something equal to maybe 2% of that gap. Um, That is something that I think is gonna be another long-term fight, because if we are looking at a silver tsunami and if more state employees are going to retire, that would certainly include state employees who are social workers or work in institutions or group homes, and they're just going to put more clients into a private nonprofit sector that's basically saying we're already losing money. And I'm sorry, I should also mention, these nonprofits lost millions of dollars in the pandemic. Certain programs that they offered couldn't be provided anymore um, just because you couldn't do them with the proper social distancing. They had massive additional um, PPE costs, and the state did not pick up and cover all of that. So it's an industry that's pretty fragile to begin with.
0: One more before you go, Keith. Uh, We know that tolls are probably not going to be something that uh, Governor Lamont brings up. He has proposed this transportation climate initiative, but that's really not something that's going to help pay for uh, future transportation projects. Is there something in this budget proposal that could help with uh, highways and bridges in our state?
1: No, uh, there isn't. And uh, just a little more framing here, you know that the special transportation fund in the state budget, that is what pays off uh, the borrowing. We borrow money to fix our roads, bridges, and rail lines by borrowing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. That triggers matching federal grants that helps pay for that, that infrastructure work. But it all goes back again to the state budget You can't put debt on your credit card that you can't pay off and the special transportation fund is headed for insolvency probably by 2024 or 2025. Governor Lamont does not want to propose tolls a third time after getting turned down twice. Um, we're not expecting, uh, any gasoline tax increases beyond what you talked about in in terms of collaborating with the regional, our climate initiative program, and that money wouldn't go for for really bolstering the transportation fund anyway. So what that means is kind of continuing what we've started to do quietly over the last year, which is go to Wall Street less often to borrow money less often. In other words, for example, if I borrow $800 million a year to fix roads, and instead I start borrowing it every 14 months or every 15 months, I'm spacing out the amount of time the DOT has to wait to get the same amount of money. Both the the construction trades and the construction industry are saying everyone knows what that leads to. Ultimately, it slows down projects. And I think it's part of a holding action to try to delay this for two more years, and then we'll declare a crisis conveniently times right after the next state election, and we'll say, things can't wait, something has to be done or else.
0: And the cycle continues. Keith Fannum again. Now state it's under budget. the rug. <laughs>
1: He's state budget reporter at the Connecticut Mirror.
0: There's a reason they call you the budget guru. Keith really knows his stuff. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, the impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump has begun, the second impeachment trial of Mr. Trump. We talk with Christopher Viles, professor of English and director of American Studies at UConn, about impeachment and how four years of Trump has impacted American democracy. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalphus Joining us now on the phone, Christopher Viles, Professor of English and Director of American Studies at UConn. Chris, are you there?
2: Yes, I'm here. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks so much. Sorry, it's having some technical problems.
0: Gotta love the connection issues, but that's okay. We're glad that we're able to talk with you on the phone. So I just want to start out with talk about impeachment and then we can move on to what your specialty is, which is uh, studying fascism. But just to put some cards on the table, is it fair to say you are not a fan of former President Trump?
2: No, I'm not, um, just because I do see some um, linkages really to the right-wing authoritarianism, authoritarianisms of the past that I did not think were really possible um, or electable in the United States.
0: So when we think about this impeachment trial underway now, what are the risks? We we know that obviously President Trump is no longer in office, but does it continue to give him attention, oxygen, including oxygen for f- followers like Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene? There's a real fracture now in the GOP.
2: Yes, I, I do think there's a risk of that, but um I think they're doing the right thing basically by trying to make the trial as quick as possible to make sure that that oxygen is not drawn out. Um so what but the larger thing is you do want to make um folks who do authoritarian power grabs responsible. If there's no consequences for that kind of behavior and that kind of action then they're you're going to further embolden them for the future. So I do strongly believe that there should be some consequences for that. But I think strategically and tactically you're absolutely right and that you do not want to draw this out too long because you don't want all attention focused on it but just do the trial make it quick um and try to make the accountability as um cons- uh, as 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 thick as possible without giving too much oxygen to the process.
0: Mm. So let's talk about the grounds for impeachment, uh, Chris. Uh, again, uh, then-president, uh, the the charge then-president incited a crowd of his supporters who gathered near the White House. He urged them to go to the Capitol, where we see uh, really dramatic footage also played uh, yesterday, uh, at the opening day of this impeachment trial, where these people fought with police. They smashed their way into the building. All happening while Congress was meeting to certify the presidential election results. Do you see similarities between what happened that day and because you're a scholar looking into fascism, uh, what the black shirts did under Mussolini back in Rome in 1922?
2: Yeah, sure. And people really kind of forget that when we're talking about fascism, the attention is all on Germany and Hitler, which was 1933. But if you back up, really, the first fascist regime was Mussolini's Italy, which kind of be, first came into power in 1922. And what you see there, and what people forget, is that it He came to power by a process remarkably similar to what we saw on January 6th, which is to say um, there was a democratically elected government. The prime minister was a centrist. Um, Mussolini's fascist party, which was formed in 1921, just right a year before that, 25,000 black shirts armed with clubs marched on the Capitol, marched by the Capitol building um, in a show of force designed to intimidate the elected parliament, and Italy was a constitutional monarchy at the time, and the king basically just bowed, depressed pressure. Victor, king Victor Emmanuel essentially just said, "Okay, Mussolini, come on in. Um, you can. I'll dissolve par- Parliament. I'll make you prime minister. And the rest is history." He, he didn't be, become a full-blown dictator immediately, but within three years, he had consolidated his power. So um, you know, there. But even there is kind of striking the even the black had enough sense of decorum not to actually enter the buildings. <laughs> you know, so even they didn't actually march through the buildings. But um it was a show of force, an armed show of force, and the state of the time just caved. So um yeah, there there is there is some parallels. I mean, and that's that's the larger parallel I kind of see is that though the an impeachment um the opening kind of case right was the video um the that the Democrats showed of the folks breaking into the capitol, and I think in certain ways that's more effective than anything else that came out after that with their arguments because Really, you see that a bunch of guys breaking into the Capitol to overturn a democratic election is exactly what it looks like. These are folks who just did not like the results of an election and tried to overturn it by force and violence. And that needs to be taken care of at all levels.
0: So you think that this riot was a serious attempt to overthrow our government? Sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but unlike the past, it wasn't, you know, I don't think it was Trump's Um, plan. There was not like an active coordination between Trump and uh, the folks there. It seems like it was a fairly spontaneous uprising, although um, individuals and groups within that crowd had done some planning. It wasn't a concerted coup attempt, but the effect was the same. The effect was to, by force, try to um, intimidate um, democratically elected officials, and possibly, um, if we take seriously things like gallows being erected outside of the Capitol to actually murder some of these folks. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's something that we should all take extremely seriously, and the folks who did that should face some real consequences. Mm.
0: Speaking of consequences, you know, right now it doesn't look like there will be enough Republicans that will vote uh, to that, that uh, Mr. Trump is guilty of this charge of inciting an insurrection. And so what do you think the consequence of that will be, even after this trial is over, if they don't have the votes? Um, because part of it is making sure that Mr. Trump does run again
2: yeah I mean I it, it doesn't look like they're going to be able to bring a conviction against Trump I mean I don't I don't have a crystal ball but it just doesn't seem like the the electoral math is there for them to get the votes for that but I think it's What they do need to do is at least try, which they're doing, and they do need to get this over quickly. But I don't think Trump's uh, legal troubles are going to be over after this. I mean, there's the tax fraud issues in the state of New York. Um, There's the stuff that he's kind of facing with the secretary of state in Georgia. I mean, another, you know, analog to Italian history here is, is also not just Mussolini, but Berlusconi, who is a man in certain ways very similar to Trump, who shortly after um, he left office was kind of led away in handcuffs, right? So it's it's possible that other other issues at the state level that don't necessarily deal with authoritarianism might actually come to haunt him, just kind of classic, simple corruption issues.
0: You're hearing Christopher Viles here on Where We Live, professor of English and director of American Studies at UConn. He's the author of Haunted by Hitler, Liberals, the Left and the Fight Against Fascism in the United States, and co-editor of the U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Can you talk more about the Berlusconi uh, comparison and we think about this idea of a comeback for Mr. Trump? Um, sure.
2: I mean, um, Berlusconi kind of now is a footnote, but I mean, he had his heyday in the '90s, mid '90s, and the early 2000s in Italy. But the parallel really was that you have this kind of right-wing media playboy who is very id driven, who is a rich man who kind of plays a rich man on TV, who's surrounded by models, um, but and who's also. But I think the difference between um, Trump and Berlusconi was that you know, whereas in his public Public image and public persona, Trump and Berlusconi were pretty similar. Um, at the level of politics, they were they were different. I mean, tr- Trump. I'm sorry, uh, Berlusconi was a straight up neoliberal. He was um, emphasized free markets, um, deregulating the the Italian economy. Trump, while he did that in practice, was that was not really what animated his followers or what has galvanized his followers. What Trump. Uh, did do to galvanize his followers, and I think this is what does place him in um, a much harder, darker right-wing tradition, is that he used appeals to kind of race, nation, action, violence, authority, the leadership principle, the strong man, all of these kind of these um, rhetorical and emotional registers that those of us who study fascism Recognize intimately, right? So that's so there's always a difference between what someone says and what someone does. And in Trump's case, it really is kind of what he says that make puts him more in that kind of very dark right wing authoritarian tradition, um, you know to the, less so than the actual policy he created.
0: And Berlusconi, he's someone that's still uh, in politics today in the EU Parliament now. Does that, you know, when we look at the comparison with Mr. Trump uh, promising that that he will stick with politics, uh, do you see that as an, an interesting comparison as well?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, guys like that can't really ever leave the limelight. I mean, they need it. Right. So I don't know what Trump would or someone like Trump or Berlusconi would do with themselves and let, if they lost a microphone. Um, I mean, Trump apparently now is spending a lot of his time playing golf, um, seems very depressed, but I, I don't see that – I I see him trying to bust out of that as quickly as possible. So, and yeah, so again, like a narcissist needs a stage, right? And so I don't think um, Trump is done, but I think the larger thing to really focus on really is not so much Trump, but Trumpism and the kind of white nationalist um, impact and the space for white nationalism that he has created in American public life.
0: Mm. In an interview you did with WNPR back in 2016, you said that Trump, who was then a presidential candidate and the GOP front runner, was fascist minded. Would you call him a fascist today?
2: Uh, sure. I mean, not in the sense of, I mean, I don't shy away from that word um, where it's appropriate. Um, fascist minded, I think, is, is the register. And look, he never created a fascist government, never even came close. He did some, to me, very awful things. He kind of mainstreamed um, a kind of overt racism, the family separations, all of these things. But but nonetheless, if he had created a fascist state, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Um, And but it, nor did he kind of command a coherent fascist movement in the sense that there wasn't, you know, it wasn't something like the the um, the Mussolini's PNF or the Nazi Party or the Falange in Spain where you had a political party with a distinct militia arm, and they were working in tandem. You didn't really have anything that coherent. He wasn't disciplined enough to create something that coherent. But again, it's the the rhetoric of um, violence, it's the rhetoric of nation, authority, race – action, the apocalyptic stakes of black and white, the apocalyptic sense of time driving it all, the sense of imminent decay, the sense of national renewal, um, all of these things are are things that kind of place him within that tradition um, psychologically and rhetorically, even though in impact he wasn't really able to transform the institutions along those lines.
0: You can join our conversation, eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven as we talk to Christopher Viles, professor of English and director of American Studies at UConn, co-editor of the U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader. Again, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, at where we live. Uh, Alex is calling in from Avon. Alex, go ahead.
2: Oh, hi, Lucy. Thank you so much. So uh, I think the media is really getting this all wrong. These people were not, fi- the mob was not fighting to overturn An election. They were fighting because they were lied to, and they were told that their country had been stolen from them. Now, anyone being told that would have fought tooth and nail to get their country back. That's what's really going on
1: here, and I think every media account is that they tried to overturn a democratic election. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. Uh, they, They
2: were fighting to save nation
0: That they felt was stolen from them. But the symbolism of the fact that they were doing that uh, on the day when Congress was meeting to certify an election that, again, as Alex mentioned, uh, these people felt was stolen from them because they were lied to. I wonder, Christopher, if you could, could respond to our caller. Yeah, I
2: mean, I, I think Alex raises an important point um, in the sense that um, these folks were not. Philosophically rejecting democracy, right? So they weren't, it wasn't like Hitler and Mussolini and some of these folks who philosophically rejected the very principle of democracy. Um, but that said, that's, I still don't, um, that still isn't really kind of caused me to backtrack from what I said earlier about them trying to overturn a democratic election, because folks who do engage in that behavior always think the election is illegitimate. They always think the the, uh, power was stolen from them on some level. Now, the um, the valences of that might be a little bit different. Um, but the effect is really the same. Um, And there's corollaries not just to fascism, but in a lot of Latin American dictatorships um, and a lot of Latin American struggles over democracy, too. You do see kind of um, folks trying to overturn an election by force. And it is oftentimes driven by this idea. It's generally always driven by the idea that they're trying to take back the nation that was stolen from them by force and violence. And yes, I guess it's, It does make somewhat of a difference that they're not philosophically rejecting democracy. And that's something that's really important to think about in the American case, um, particularly, is that the United States does have um, a tradition of racialized democracy, right, where... Um, voting and citizenship rights is defined by whiteness. It's also defined historically by exclusions. And so, um, when you, when you have people kind of try to take over a capital in the name of, you know, taking back an election, they're trying to also kind of take it back on some level through this history of a limited franchise, right? And so, on some level in the United States with, you know, it's kind of a history of a racialized and kind of incomplete democracy. Um, oftentimes the authoritarian upswings and the up- uh, authoritarian swells are going to be based on restoring democracy in the name of democracy that is quite limited, right, in scope. And it follows a much more kind of limited um, like racial franchise that you had in the past and it's it 's striking when you see those videos that there's almost all of these folks are white guys, almost all of them I'm almost every last one and so I mean, I think we do need to kind of keep that angle in mind as well
0: uh, when we think about uh this damage to democracy for all the the factors that you have raised, but also the distrust in the institutions of our country, the fact that those who disagree or do not support uh, Mr. Trump, uh, his supporters see those that don't support Trump as enemies of the people. We heard that rhetoric. Uh, how damaging is this moving forward? Again, Mr. Trump is no longer in office, but what does that mean for our American democracy, Christopher?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not great. I mean, it's it's not unprecedented. Um, but it's but it's also not great. I mean, you basically have a, a, you know, that I think that's part of the problem, too, is that once you kind of ramp up the rhetorical stakes, as Trump did, to show that your enemies are not even human, um, you do create a toxic politics. I mean, I think if, if you listen to some of the right-wing radio and if you listen to kind of the narratives even that Trump was putting forward, it's not that the Democratic base were just folks who disagreed with him. At a certain point, if you were a Democratic voter or if you were you know, not part of his base, there's a certain level you are not even fully human in his eyes. And if you start to actually have a whole media apparatus that puts that out consistently and consistently and consistently, then um, – you're going to have also the the flip side, too, is that the other side also is going to start saying, OK, well, you know, the Trump media, those folks aren't even fully human, too. They're deplorable. They're awful. Blah, blah, blah. Right. So it's it's Um. I, I don't I kind of want to resist in certain la- ner- ways this narrative of polarization. But at the same time, that polarization is quite a real thing. So
0: our caller mentioned the fact that so many people believe uh, this the election was fraudulent, they believe the lies, and there are a portion of Americans who believe they were cheated out of uh, this presidency. So how do we bring those people back into the fold uh, where facts matter?
2: Well, I mean, I think, and I've said this in other public forums too, um, people need to see that a sane, rational politics actually works and delivers the goods, as crass as that sounds sounds. I mean, if you look at kind of, you know, Western Europe after World War II, um, you had a stable democracy with a rising standard of living um, for most people, working people particularly, and in that environment, you really didn't have a good space for fascist movements to flourish. Um, But if we do have um, an economic structure where even Democrats basically kind of cave to the demands of you know, elites and things like this, and don't really deliver on any kind of promises to people, and, and working people do not see their daily lives changing one bit, then there's a lot of folks, and middle class people don't see their, their lives changing one bit. There's going to be a lot of folks who get soured and get kind of cynical on the whole principle of democracy. So I think if. If movements um, on the ground can keep pressuring um, Democrats to make changes that affect working people's lives, whether it's health care or expanding health insurance coverage or what have you, or the elimination of student debt, if they can deliver on something that makes people's lives better, then they suck the oxygen away from those who would want to bring in a toxic politics.
0: Christopher Viles, again, is Professor of English and Director of American Studies at UConn. He's the co-editor of the U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader and author of Haunted by Hitler, Liberals, the Left, and the Fight Against Fascism in the United States. Christopher, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: Today's show is produced by Matt Dwyer. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Coming up tomorrow on Where We Live, plumbers and electricians are essential workers with well paying jobs, yet, skilled trades face worker shortages and struggle to recruit young people. On The Next Where We Live, we talk about vocational education. Do you work in a skilled trade? We want to hear from you. That's tomorrow. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Thanks for listening.